to Peace in Their Time, episode 63, The Double Ten Revolution. As discussed last week, by 1911, China was ripe for a regime change. The precipitating event finally came on October 9, 1911. The place was the city of Wuhan in the province Hubei, about in the center of the core of China. And just as an aside, back in those days, Wuhan was actually a collection of three cities along the Yangtze River, situated adjacent to each other, which is why you'll see the commencement of the revolution referred to as the Wuchang Uprising. That's just the town and future district of Wuhan it happened in. Anyway, a revolutionary cell based out of the Russian-operated part of town accidentally set off a bomb they were working on, alerting the authorities. I did describe the Empire powder keg last week, which I felt fitting given this inciting incident. More important than shutting down an explosives workshop, the authorities also found a list of names, which was a register of the members for the same revolutionary cell. The group knew the list had fallen into the hands of the cops, and so decided the next day, 10th, to launch an uprising, believing themselves to be doomed anyway. That's why the date has become known as Double Ten Day, as it took place on the 10th day of the 10th month. The uprising caught the authorities by surprise, and the local Qing governor and military commander both fled, which meant that the state apparatus stood aside without orders, while the rebels took the Wuhan area. The rebels on the 12th made a local officer, a man named Li Yuanhong, their leader. Li was not terribly enthusiastic, but feared for his life if he told them no and agreed to take command. The burdens of leadership, though, were not great, and the rebels stuck to Wuhan and awaited what would happen. Luckily for them, word of the revolt spread like wildfire, and tellingly, the Qing did not organize any counterattack. The rebels, speaking for the Hubei province as a whole, declared their independence from the Qing government. Now, a province declaring independence in China in those days carried with it different connotations than, oh, let's say Americans might have in their minds. If an American state declared independence, then it was going off to form its own new country. In China, though, this merely meant that the provincial government was no longer going to answer to Beijing. It would conduct its affairs autonomously, but remain a part of China until it was reconciled to the national government either by force of arms or through negotiation. Over the next six weeks, almost the whole of China proper joined in, until the Qing only controlled the Henan and Zhili provinces. The Zhili province, as a note, is the predecessor to the modern Hebei province, which it was renamed to in 1928. It was a larger unit back in those days, and is important to remember because it's the one that included Beijing, and also was the namesake of an important faction that's going to pop up in the future, which is why I'll be referring to it by its old name for now. The imperial court recognized the seriousness of the situation and recalled Yuan Shikai to resume command of the Beiyang army and put down the rebellion. Yuan, though, declined several times, forcing the government to offer him full control of the army and political power to make any decision as he saw fit to handle the crisis. This ended up with Yuan forcing out the boy emperor Puyi's regent and forming a government with himself as the leader. Having taken control of the state, Yuan turned around and opened negotiations with the revolutionaries. His calculation was that the Qing government could not be safe, and even if his Beiyang army was the most powerful force in China, marching it through virtually every province of the empire wasn't feasible. The various regions of China had also become extremely mobilized during the revolution. 
For example, the province of Jiangsu had increased its own standing army from 44,000 to 180,000 men, and that was just the one province. The rebels couldn't dislodge Yuan from Beijing, but he couldn't crush all of them either. So he decided it was time to shuffle the Qing off the stage and cut a deal. He managed to convince Puyi to peacefully abdicate his throne as a start. With a minimum of fuss, the last Qing emperor was shuffled off to the Forbidden City within Beijing for safekeeping in February 1912. This will be far from the last time we've seen of the ex-emperor, so don't forget about it. While China slipped into revolution, Sun Yat-sen found himself in Denver, Colorado, canvassing for support. When he heard of the revolution, he opted to head east to Europe first, stopping in the UK and France to try and secure financial and foreign support. It wouldn't be until December 24, 1911, that he made it back to Shanghai, where the revolutionaries held an abbreviated election to make him president of the freshly declared Republic of China. And while it was all well and good that Sun actually had the personal appeal needed to assume a position of leadership, that position was built mostly on optimism. Yuan was in Beijing with the Beiyang army, and it would only be through him that any republic would get off the ground, and everybody in China knew it. In addition, the provinces were in favor of whatever restored the peace, got rid of the Qing, and maintained their autonomy. A republic would suffice for them as long as it respected their privileges, which wasn't a ringing endorsement for a reformer like Sun, and very much so a good sign for the conservative Yuan. The price that Yuan eventually delivered to the revolutionaries was a steep one, but initially thought to be manageable. Once the republic was truly established in Beijing, Yuan would become its president. Yuan laced his requests with not-so-subtle hints towards military violence, should his request be denied. Soon, maybe feeling his moment would come again, accepted the arrangement and in March 1912, Yuan took over the office of president. Soon contented himself with becoming the director of railway development, a clear demotion, but one that kept him out of Yuan's crosshairs for the moment. The high-stakes horse trading might not seem great, and long-term it wasn't, but Yuan was a national figure known at least for being competent, and as the leader of the Beiyang army, he was widely accepted, even among intellectuals, for being the guy to lead the new republic in its early days. Unfortunately for China, the challenges of implementing a wholly new type of government, one that Yuan really didn't buy into, would prove to be beyond his capabilities. The fact that he was a proven turncoat that only sided with the new government under the condition that he got to be in charge of it only boded worse for the nation's fortunes. As Yuan was settling into office, soon in August 1912, joined with an old revolutionary associate of his named Song Jiaorin to establish a new political party, the Kuomintang, or the KMT. The KMT is a term worth remembering as it will be the leading faction in China throughout this time period through to the end of World War II. Uh, they also are known oftentimes as the Nationalists, and I'll be using the three terms interchangeably. Song is notable because he was the man who drafted the nation's first constitution, and he was also the first political leader of the KMT. While Soon was the more prominent figure, he was also planning on serving in his new ministry, so Song was tasked with handling the legislative side. While Yuan became the president of China, there were scheduled elections to choose representatives to a national assembly. Quick aside to how the government was supposed to work under the newly agreed-upon constitution, 
the National Assembly was the elected House of Representatives. This was basically the Parliament. They would elect a president and vice president themselves, as well as the premier, who acted exactly like a prime minister, filling ministry leadership posts and managing the cabinet. These first elections took place at the end of 1912, and the KMT was by far the most popular party, and cemented itself as the leading political force in China. Keep in mind, again, that these elections were only among the more well-off echelons of Chinese life, so they were representative of certain segments of the country only. The Cambridge History of China estimates that the percentage of the population registered to vote was only between 4 to 6 percent, which was better than the 1 percent qualified for local elections under the Qing, but still not anything close to democratic. And the most remote and undeveloped territories couldn't be expected to field the representatives, so Yuan made appointments on their behalf. This created situations like a lawyer from Shanghai representing Outer Mongolia. The new political parties themselves were dominated by intellectuals and thinkers. And among the politically engaged, the KMT was the tops. They achieved their electoral success by backing off the more radical positions that Soon, Song, and their supporters had held before the revolution. Tax and land reforms went out the window, and instead they focused on preserving local autonomy which went over great for the conservative local gentries that were anxious to have representation that would push that exact line. And it also suited Song just fine as he was primarily looking to limit Yuan's power, and frustrating his efforts at centralizing fit the bill for that. There were also new elections for the provincial assemblies. Uh, to provide an idea of how things operated out of the provinces, the assemblies continued to be the forum for local notables while the nationally appointed governors were usually drawn from the military and control the local army. This is important, as having a stranglehold on coercive force in their territories was how officers would evolve into the warlords that would plague China in the years to come. Song had made promises of reform in only a general sense during the elections, so as not to disturb the less democratically inclined Yuan. But once in power, he immediately started working to enact laws through the National Assembly to specifically rein in the president's powers and force a democratic election of that office. It was not long after that, a gunman assassinated Song in March 1913 at a train station in Shanghai. There was no evidence as to Yuan's involvement, but it was definitely him. In the wake of Song's murder, Soon and the KMT leadership convened and decided that they weren't going to be able to rein in Yuan through political means. They would have to fight him, just like they had the Qing. For this second revolution, as it would come to be known, Soon probably hoped for more success than his uprisings in the past. The government that Yuan was moving to assert full control over was still weak, and mostly held authority in the region around Beijing. As the provincial elites had hoped, the onset of revolution and disintegration of the imperial state only made the regionalism of the country more severe. The Qing's beleaguered attempts at reversing the trend of decentralization was a partial cause of the 1911 revolution, and Yuan at the start of 1913 had started issuing new laws on how provincial governments would be organized and run, which immediately set off a fresh storm of indignation outside of the capital. So there were plenty of potential allies for Soon to appeal to in order to stand against Yuan. Now, so far, you're probably getting a fairly bad impression of Yuan, so I'm going to take a minute to play devil's advocates. He had turned on his former master, then bullied the democratic revolutionaries, 
murdered a prominent political opponent the second his power was threatened, and started imposing his will on local authorities once secured in office. Which, okay, we're all bad and speak to a personality that instinctively grasped for power. It might be worthwhile, albeit difficult, to take a look at events from his perspective. He had served the Qing dynasty first as a reformer who saw the failure and disunity of the late empire as a cause not just of weakness, but also of the gravest national embarrassment. He was a patriot, after all. And he took up with the revolutionaries only when it was clear to him that defeating them on the battlefield would serve little purpose, as the deficiencies of the imperial state would ensure that he would just have to put down more uprisings in the future. So he took a chance and hitched himself to the nation's intelligentsia, which, while he did not share their idealism, he did find kindred spirits on modernizing China and bringing it on par with the other great powers of the globe. But the aftermath of the revolution gave him pause. While he agreed with the general idea that China needed to be modernized, he diverged drastically with his new allies on how to actually accomplish this. He was much more accustomed to a more, shall we say, structured way of life. While he was no fool and understood the concepts of democracy and participatory politics, he did not set such a high value in them. Unlike Soon, he had not journeyed out into the world and seen for himself how other powers of the day worked. His life experience was purely within China, and ergo what he knew was a creaking empire whose central court was beset by corruption and infighting. It wasn't inherently bad, it just needed to be cleaned out so that capable figures, like himself, to tend directly to society's ills. The revolution had cleared it all up, and now he was in charge. But now, Yuan probably felt constrained all over again, this time by politicians rather than the old courtesans. The revolution had also opened up society. All of a sudden, people were free to speak their minds, a notable example being the community of Beijing students, who became extremely vocal. Politicians debated national policy instead of moving in accordance with their president. The provinces attended to their own affairs while paying minimal attention to Yuan's leadership. In fact, the revolution had simply made the problems of decentralization somehow worse. And it was in this time that the most far-flung territories like Tibet and Outer Mongolia really started slipping from Beijing's grasp entirely. Yuan had attempted to insert institutions that would supersede the decisions of local governments, uh, but this was one issue that even he couldn't intimidate the parliament on. Due to the weak center, it appeared as if the nation was unraveling even after the removal of the Qing. Yuan believed that it would be a conservative mentality like his that would regenerate the nation, and all these new developments were in defiance of that. Really, something like the murder of Song was only a matter of time, as Yuan was dead set to become very conservative. So now Yuan had forced the issue, and in spring 1913, and just a little over a year after the formation of the Republic, civil war was again in the air. Yuan held the capital Beijing and the largest concentration of troops, about 80,000 in all, and they were the best ones available too. Soon, in the KMT's best hope militarily, were the provincial forces stationed around Nanjing, the traditional southern capital of China and one of its most important cities. Back in the heady days of the October 10th Revolution, it had served as the capital of the uprising before Yuan was brought on board. The KMT had also not been idle before Song's assassination, and had brought a number of provincial power brokers into the network of the party. Always keep in mind that in Chinese politics during those days, personal relationships were absolutely key. Personal relationships to powerful people 
netted you influence and opened doors to still more people you could form connections with. And the KMT is the first truly national party through the network for contacts that might have otherwise remained purely local, the ability to plug into a national movement. Song's assassination opened the floodgates for action, and it became increasingly obvious that there would be some kind of civil war. One of the key moves Yuan made to prepare for that was by taking out a very large foreign loan in April 1913. Given that his regime was pulling in hardly any income from the provinces, it was going to be needed if he was to assert his authority or even just keep the government's lights on. The loan was provided by a consortium of foreign nations led by Great Britain, and a fun condition was to allow Western officials to have oversight of some aspects of the Chinese government. Namely, they would oversee Chinese customs, the collection of land taxes, and the salt tax. Effectively, they were enforcing direct oversight on the financial mechanisms that Yuan would be paying back the loan. This loan had three positives for him. The most obvious is that now Yuan had the money to actually have his confrontation with the rest of China. The second is that now that he owed money to foreign governments and allowed their nations to operate in his government, they had a tangible interest to keep him around. The last benefit was that the collection of all these taxes would be under Western oversight, and the taxes would be sent directly to Beijing. Sure, the point was to make sure Yuan stayed solvent enough to pay the loan back, but for Yuan it also meant there would actually be some money flowing to the national government, which was a huge win for him, even if the West took a cut. And since the loan consortium was led by the UK, it could be trusted to merely be greedy rather than looking to tear China down entirely. The big downside is that this did not go unnoticed by the Chinese body politic. Once again, just like the Qing era before, China was opening itself to foreign exploitation. While this feeling would not immediately affect the situation, it would help sow the seeds for later unrest and undermine the Beijing government. Those increasingly vocal students I mentioned earlier weren't in any mood to defer to Qing-era relics like Yuan and his subordinates, overwhelming military force Badam. Yuan also moved to limit the damage of the coming civil showdown. Starting in April, he began shuttling troops into the Hubei province, still under the command of Li Yuanhong, who cooperated with Beijing after declining KMT offers to join with them in an alliance against Yuan. Most of the resistance against him was concentrated in the center and south of China proper, and Hubei offered him free access to most of those regions, so having a base there was critical. In May 1913, he started working with the non-KMT political parties to get them on his side. And by working with, I of course mean he started bribing them with some of that sweet, sweet loan money. Heck, he even sent some of it to members of the KMT that he hoped to keep on his good side once the tensions had cooled down. The non-KMT parties were doubly receptive because the nationalists had been so successful in the Assembly's elections at the end of 1912 that they had been largely shut out of any positions of power and were eager to enlarge their share of that body. This shut down any lingering political attempts in the National Assembly to rein in his power, and also isolated the KMT, which at this point was clearly the primary target of Yuan's ire. In June, he ordered the dismissal of the KMT-aligned governors in the Anhui, Jiangxi, and Guangdong provinces. At first, the governors publicly agreed with his decision and resigned, but kept control behind the scenes. Once Beiyang troops entered Hubei and started marching openly, though, the governor of Jiangxi returned to his post and declared his independence. Plans that the KMT had been laying for months now sprang into action, 
and to the north, Nanjing was taken, and an uprising was launched in Shanghai. For a moment, it looked like China would be locked into a civil war. But this is Sun Yat-sen we're talking about. Poor, poor Sun. Sorry, bastard's only successful uprising so far was the one he was absent for. Everything went wrong immediately for him and the KMT. Shanghai almost fell to the uprising, but didn't. The KMT launched five attacks on the city's arsenal, but were repulsed each time. Decisively, the Chinese Navy opened fire on the revolutionaries after receiving a cash payment, courtesy of the foreign loan yuan had secured. Nanjing was quickly retaken by storm, and the Beiyang general on scene, a monarchist named Zheng Zun, revenged himself on the revolutionaries by allowing his troops to pillage the city for three days. The extensive network of KMT operatives in the provincial governments remained inert and contributed nothing to this life-or-death cause, which left the collective province of Jiangxi hanging with its collective neck stuck way, way out. Yuan's army rolled into the province, and in a few weeks, had stamped out the rebellion. Soon was back out into exile and headed for Japan. The event would come to be called the Second Revolution, but hardly deserves the title as the completeness of the Beiyang victory would ensure the KMT was stuck in the margins for years. The only silver lining was that the KMT had managed to attract a number of powerful admirers across the nation for taking such a principled stand, and that while they were driven underground, they were still a viable faction. Many provincial leaders continued to sympathize with them, especially in the far south, and would act as beachheads for Soon and his followers to make their return. But in the meantime, they were exiled. Okay, so it probably didn't take a genius to see that coming. The KMT might have gotten their votes, but they lacked active support among the upper and middle classes of China to take on Yuan. The reason was those classes simply weren't interested in upsetting the status quo again so soon after bringing down a 250-year-old empire. And at the same time, the KMT had made no effort to rally the masses of the lower classes either. Yuan also had that all-important foreign backing, so the uprising was never going to get outside support as well. It also didn't help that the first year of the Republic had already left a bad impression on the nation's intelligentsia. Their increasingly nationalistic hopes had been that the government, ostensibly designed on a Western model, would in turn be welcomed and encouraged by the West. Instead, it had been treated just as the Qing had, with its finances continuing to be tied up and concessions still held in the grip of foreigners. Then there was, as I mentioned last week, the issue that there hadn't been an agreed-upon platform for the new state. It was just get rid of the Qing. Yuan had no expectation of reform to satisfy and so didn't suffer a personal loss of support when he didn't deliver anything new. And that's just kind of it as far as democratic China goes. The depressing truth is that this really was a decisive moment for almost the next three decades of Chinese history. For the briefest of moments, effectively less than six months, China had elements of a representative and elected government. It wasn't truly democratic by any metric, but it at least had mechanisms so that one day it might have been. It was something that the mainland had never enjoyed before, or, let's face it, since. Worse, this democratic movement had been snuffed out not by any truly popular force, but by a strong man who just so happened at that moment to possess the military force necessary to assert himself at the top of a hierarchy of other strongmen. Yuan was not a great man of history. He was not a notable builder or statesman. His personal charisma wasn't even that great. 
probably the biggest forces keeping Yuan in power were the weakness of his potential opponents and the apathy of the general population towards the idea of disrupting their own lives enough to bring him down. If at any time this balance became disturbed, and it would, our chief warlord would suffer his own fall, and a new struggle for power would begin. And this is going to be China's sad story playing out internally. Even when the Japanese meddle and eventually invade later on down the road, the constant power grabs that are going to be endemic were still going to be playing out. Yuan started a crisis of legitimacy that would not be resolved until years after my own projected narrative will come to an end. By his own treachery, he placed himself firmly as the premier example of how not to conduct yourself in modern Chinese politics, at least according to modern Chinese politicians. If there was one silver lining, I mentioned earlier, this was the high point for Yuan Shikai. Seemingly secure, he began to overreach himself badly, starting the process of national disintegration that he was unable to stop by the time of his death. I'll be picking his story back up next week when Yuan is at the peak of his power and influence, and sadly for him, very close to his own end. Tune in then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.